you know what? If you want to raise a dysfunctional family, love your children conditionally. Now, if you're good enough, maybe I'll love you. Maybe, you know, you want to raise a healthy family, you love them unconditionally. That's how God loves us. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Our guest this week is the noted journalist and apologist Lee Strobel. Lee's latest book is titled The Case for Grace. I'm very glad you've joined us for this week's conversation. As we talk with people each week, you may or may not recognize their names, but each guest has a unique story to tell, and I enjoy bringing them to you. For the audio archive of all these conversations, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Again, that's firstpersoninterview.com. And our Facebook page is where you can leave comments about what you hear. Look us up there at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, Lee Strobel is perhaps best known for his series of books which followed his original bestseller, The Case for Christ. While continuing to write, Lee is also now professor of thought at Houston Baptist University and a teaching pastor at Woodlands Church in Texas. Now he's written The Case for Grace, a journalist explores the evidence of transformed lives. We talked on the phone recently, and since Lee once lived and worked in Chicago, I began by telling him we missed him in the Windy City. Well, I miss Chicago, too. You know, I grew up there, worked at the Chicago Tribune, loved everything except the winners. So now I'm down in Texas where I don't have to deal with the snow anymore. <laughs> oh, you're, you're one of those people that ran away. I understand. I get it. Yeah, That's right. The weak people all fled. <laughs> well, it's a great pleasure to talk with you again. It's been a long time since we've talked, and yeah. I recently was given your book, The Case for grace. And I got to tell you, I mean, it, it's a, it brings tears. It really does. Um, mm. But I imagine it brought some tears for you, too. It did, Wayne, because uh, in many ways, you know, I've done a lot of books, but uh, this book was the toughest. And the reason is because I talk very candidly about uh, parts of my life that I've never really disclosed before, uh, things about my relationship with my father and uh, certain health issues and so forth, all of which had a big impact in terms of my spiritual uh, attitudes and, and perspective. And, um, yeah, I, I figured if it will help people uh, find this grace, which God uses to transform lives, then it's worth uh, writing about. But it was it was hard in many ways. Yeah. Well, you had me at the introduction, Lee, because uh, in the introduction you talk about, well, yeah, I think you quote J.I. Packer, right? He says, we don't really understand yeah. what Christ has done for us unless we understand adoption. And and I was adopted yeah. as a as an infant. And, and I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and so every time I see that word adoption come up, it, it gets my attention, and you had my attention mm-hmm. immediately. So it's true, though, isn't wow. it? Wow. It is true. The, you know, the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about God is not only does he offer forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift, which he could have done but kept us at arm's length, or he could have done it and made us more of a servant. But, you know, the story of the prodigal son, uh, the prodigal son comes back and he doesn't make him just a servant. He, he uh, you know, brings him back into the family. And, and, and the Bible says that God will adopt us as his son or daughter. Um, you know, it talks about John one twelve. but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So this idea of adoption, uh, so many of us who grew up with difficult relationships with our fathers, as I did, um, you know, hunger for the perfect father. And for some people, the disappointment they feel with their earthly father deters them from trying to seek after the perfect father. They, they don't want to be disappointed even more 
by a heavenly father. And so people like Josh McDowell, who had an abusive and alcoholic father, mm-hmm. uh, said, you know, it wasn't good news to me when people said there was a heavenly father. My father hurt me. I mean, I, I, it made me run the other way. And, and that's, that's true for a lot of people. Um, and yet we can all imagine what a perfect father would be like. He'd be loving, he'd be gracious, he'd be uh, unconditional in his love. And uh, when we realize that love is available and he will adopt us as his child, that's a radical message. Yeah. We got to know each other when you were a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. Yes. You've always approached your books as a journalist. The Case for Christ is a perfect example. How Has that approach changed in this book? Well, yes and no. I mean, in a sense, when I wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith and The Case for Creator, I was looking at the foundational evidence that points toward the truth of Christianity. So the evidence from science that establishes that there is a supernatural creator, the evidence from history that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and then backed it up by returning from the dead. Um, But there's more to it than that. I mean, I wanted now in The Case for Grace to look at the experiential case um, and how do you do that? How do you talk about the power of grace to transform lives? Well, when Jesus um, talked about grace, he didn't give a theological treatise. He told the story of the prodigal son. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to tell different stories, each of which contributes a bit to the puzzle of grace. Um, and so I traveled, golly, maybe 20, 25,000 miles around the country sitting down with people and getting to know them, spending time with them, becoming their friends, and listening to these stories of radical life transformation, people who are meth addicts and homeless and heroin addicts and uh, living uh, immoral lives, one guy who who, uh, committed uh, 17,000 murders. Um, I mean, these are stories that when you see their life transformation, you say, you know what, there must be a God uh, to transform people like this. Yes, but you did so not just to tell their stories, but to weave it with your own story. Yes, that's a lot of it, is I wanted to connect it all with my story of going from atheism to Christianity. And a lot of that is heart stuff. You know, you can look at the head stuff, the the information part, the evidence part, but there's always a heart component. And, um, you know, my... I start the book with a scene in which my dad and I, when I was 18 years old, on the eve of my high school graduation, uh, had a blowout argument, and we'd always had a um, chilly relationship. And um, he looked at me and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. And uh, I just, I didn't know how to respond. I I turned on my heel, and I walked out, uh, never intending to return again. Moved into an apartment in a little town called Woodstock, Illinois, where I worked on the n- newspaper for the summer. And um, my mother um, ultimately brokered me returning home, but it was briefly. And then I went off to college and never really did return home, as uh, except for a brief time. And after that, uh, and my dad and I, um, we didn't really reconcile. I mean, we never talked about that incident. Uh, we we were uh, civil to each other, but there was a distance in our relationship. And here's the interesting thing, Wayne. A recent study has shown that if you are a Christian father and you wanna, you hope to pass on your faith to your kids, you hope someday they'll come to faith too. If you are devout, if you read your Bible, if you pray, if you go to church, you are less likely to pass on your faith to your children if you are a distant father. Hmm. 
that seems to be the key. Are you distant emotionally from your children? Yeah, it's not just physical absence. Absolutely. It is, a, it is an emotional distance, and that's what it was like with my dad. Um, we had an emotional distance in our relationship, and it, I think it was one of the factors that uh, pushed me down the road toward atheism. Hmm. Uh, and I don't want to give away too much because I want our listeners to read your book, but it, it never really, in this lifetime, got fixed, did it? It didn't. Uh, as I said, we were civil to each other, and uh, but you know, he never came to my college graduation or uh, wrote or um, you know. And yet, I would come home and we, we would be civil, but there was a distance. It was a chill, and so we never really fully reconciled. And, and then it got to the point where my dad died when I was at Yale Law School, just about to graduate from there, and. Um, I came home, and, and um, we were having the wake, and I asked everybody to leave, and I just stood in front of the casket, and I basically said two things. First, I'm sorry. I was sorry for the part I played in uh, the problems in our relationship, because I certainly was no angel. Um, and I said, I forgive you, um, because I did. I, I wanted to forgive him. Uh, he was probably the best father he knew how to be. And... Um, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, a bit of a healing that takes place in, it did at least in me after that, but, yeah. you know, you always wish that that kind of reconciliation could have happened right. uh, while he was alive. How much of it was you and how much of it was him? You know what? Um, I once talked to um, Jim Dobson, the psychologist, about this. We were talking one day and, and I said, I told him the story and he said, you must have done this or something really bad to have that kind of outburst from your dad. I said, well, I did. I, I bought a motorcycle uh, after he told me specifically, no, you cannot have a motorcycle. So that's a pretty bad thing yeah, to do. Yeah, I, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, on, on the other hand, um, he said to me, you know, is it ever right for a father to say, I don't love you? Hmm. I mean, it's one thing to say, uh, I'm disappointed. You, you, you know, I need to you know, hold you to account for something you've done that was against what I told you to do. But... Is it really ever appropriate for a dad to say, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger? I mean, but you know what? We're a product of how we were brought up. We're a product of a lot of different factors. Was my dad an evil person? No. He was a good guy. He was a good neighbor. He was a good father. He provided for us. I think he loved his family as best he knew how. Do you think it was more that he was unable to, to express it, or he really felt that way about you? Well, you know, we had he had three children pretty quickly, um, uh, two boys and a girl, and then there was a gap between last child and me. I was the fourth child, and I think he was very involved with the lives of the first three kids. You know, he was um, Cub Scouts and and uh, he was coach of the little league teams and all that stuff. Um, I think personally that. He had other plans for his life. He kind of did the father thing. He wanted to play golf. He was successful in business. He had a lot of things he wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, I was the, I was the unexpected pregnancy. And I, on her deathbed, I asked my mom about it. And I said, you know, uh, tell me about that. And he, she said, well, you know, it was a real surprise when uh, I was, got pregnant with you and told your dad. And, he, and she said, you know, not in a good way. And so she sort of confirmed what I suspected, which is that, um, you know, I probably interrupted plans he had for his life. And then my mother talked him him into having another baby as a a companion to me. So there were five kids ultimately. And um, I, I, you know, whereas he was involved with coaching Little League for the other boys, he never came to my game. So for whatever reason, or maybe I needed more than my brothers and sisters, I don't know, but... um, You know, those are the kind of family dynamics we never quite totally sort through. 
Our guest today on First Person is Lee Strobel, his new book, The Case for Grace, and we'll continue in a moment. I'm pleased to announce that First Person is now produced with the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company. For nearly 70 years, FEBC has been proclaiming the gospel through radio and now new technology. Active in nearly 50 countries of the world and broadcasting in over 100 languages, FEBC, founded in 1945, remains faithful to its founding vision to take Christ to the world by radio. To learn how you can support FEBC, visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. My guest on First Person today is Lee Strobel, whose new book is The Case for Grace. A journalist explores the evidence of transformed lives. And I want to get to the stories that you tell in this book, at least a couple of them here in in a few moments, Lee. But bring me up to date on on your life and what God is doing with Mm. you these days, where you are, and and, uh, what ministry you have. Well, I tell you, life is great right now. My, uh, I'm a professor at Houston Baptist University. I just moved to Houston. I'm a teaching pastor at Woodlands Church, terrific church with Carrie Shook and Chris Shook here in the Woodlands, Texas. I've got uh, two wonderful kids. So one, my daughter lives right around the corner, so she has my two oldest grandchildren. So we get to play all the time. Oh, you were blessed, my, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Then my son is now a professor. He got his PhD in theology. He's a professor at uh, Biola University in California. He has our two youngest grandchildren, and we get out there as much as we can. So I love being a dad. I love being a grandfather. My book, Case for Grace, is really. It's a very fulfilling book to have come out because it's my life message. You know, I've become an evangelist because of the way God transformed my life, and I want to see that in other lives. And and uh, so this book is so much part of my life message, that, um, and that's expressed through books and through speaking. And I, I think I spoke 113 times last year at various places, and so... Things are active and fun, but, you know, we're empty nesters, so Leslie gets to come with me on a lot of this stuff. And uh, This book is about grace. You know, we often recite, you know, grace is God's riches at, uh, at Christ's expense. Um, yeah. You know, we have sayings like that, but how do you define yeah. grace, and how is it different from love and forgiveness? Well, you know, it's all intertwined. I think it is an unconditional species of love. It is a, you know, it is undeserved and unmerited um, um, lavishing of forgiveness and, and love on people who can never um, uh, merit uh, what God is pouring out in their lives. So it, it's a, uh, it, 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 you know, you try to define it and you go, okay, I get it. Lo- uh, grace is... And un, unmer- God's unmerited love for us. Okay, got it. Uh, but we don't get it, you know? That's why I think stories are so important, because they illuminate different aspects of this grace of, uh, and this this uh, um, gift of grace that God has given us. Yeah. Not to get too technical, because I can't, but, uh, you know, yeah. you hear conversations about the the word hesed and how it's yeah. all all rolled up into that one word, that one Hebrew word. Yeah. You know, there, it, it's fascinating how when you look in the, uh, not just the original language, but even in English, the, the word grace and how it's used in so many different ways. And, and yet when you meet someone who has received and, and, and been forgiven through God's grace, um, it's, it's almost something that's beyond their words to explain. And I've seen this in the interviews I did with some of the people for the books, uh, the book that I did, uh, where I would sit down with someone who has had their life, like Cody Huff. Cody Huff was literally 
a meth addict, a heroin addict. He was homeless. He was starving to death. He was crawling in the dumpster outside a pizzeria in Las Vegas, searching for thrown away scraps of of pizza, um, and, and was as down and out as a, of a human being as you would ever meet. And he told me, Lee, if I had a gun, I would have put it in my mouth and pulled the trigger. Um, and when I asked him about grace and how God, through the a, a risk that a Christian woman took in giving this this felon, this uh, homeless man who hadn't bathed in six months, who gave him a simple hug and told him that Jesus loved him, um, when he talks about that story and how it registered with him for the first time that God can love me, a felon, uh, a meth addict, a heroin addict, a, uh, you know, a, a homeless person who hasn't had a bath and lives in the dirt. I mean, he, he can't express, he can't put it into words. It, 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 words can't contain um, his awe and wonder at the grace of God. And I think that's the problem with trying to define grace just with words. We, yeah. I think that's why stories are important to Absolutely. convey the fullness of it. Yeah. I'm going to ask an inside baseball question here because uh, you went out and found these stories, or maybe they found you, but I spent yeah. a lot of time looking for stories like that for first person, yeah. and, and you don't have to look very hard, do you? No, you don't. And, you know, I collect them because uh, I've become an addict for these kind of stories. I mean, because of my how God changed my life, I'm just so grateful and so enthused about it that, that I collect these stories, and, and, and they are everywhere. And some of them are radical. And, like, you know, I remember when um, I got a phone call from Evil Knievel, the uh, famous motorcycle daredevilist <laughs> yeah. who— Well, he, he heard would, you bought a motorcycle when you, against your yeah, father's right. wishes. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That was a Triumph, 68 Triumph 650, which Whoa. is the same bike yeah. that Evil used to jump. I know. That. Yeah, and, that's right. <laughs> That's right, and he, but he had you know God's grace. God touched him, and he read my bookcase for Christ. He had this radical transformation. He was born again as thoroughly as anybody ever met. When he died, he had emblazoned on his tombstone, "Believe in Jesus." And so it can be a famous person like that, that you go, wow, that's an incredible story. And the first time, by the way, he ever shared his story of God's grace in his life, 700 people came to faith. Mm. So that's a radical story. But, you know, I get enthused by everyday stories. Uh, my, my wife, you know, my wife was, she was a good person. Uh, she tried to please her parents. She tried to do good in school. She tried to be the nice person. In the, and she was. And yet she realized, you know what? I need grace too. I need forgiveness. I've, I've spit in the face of God a thousand times without even realizing it. And, you know, when you see everyday people like that, sometimes even those are more powerful as mm-hmm. stories because we can all relate to that kind of thing. Yeah. But you know as well as I do that there's someone listening, there are many someones listening right now, that the turn hasn't come. They haven't yeah. seen God's grace. It isn't evident to them right now. They're just going through the struggle. Yeah. Um, what, what have you learned about God's grace that can apply to them? Well, you know, one thing about God's grace is it, it, it's available. It's always available to you. Um, if you reach out to him in repentance and faith, he will pour it into your life. And I think of the story in the book about the orphan girl who was abandoned on the streets of Korea uh, at age four and lived two years on those streets and lived an incredibly horrific experience in her early years. And then when a, a, an American couple came to adopt her, what does she do? She spit in their face. Yeah. 
And uh, you know what? Um, we do that all the time. We spit in the face of God, um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes just by ignoring him. And yet, what did they do? They came back the next day and they said, we want this child. And they adopted her as their daughter, and they um, uh, poured love into her, and they got her the help that she needed. And she today has a wonderful ministry uh, out in the West Coast and all around the country. And, and, I, and I look at that and say, you know, even though you may have spit in the eye of God a dozen times, a hundred times, you've ignored him, you've run the other way, you know what? Grace is still available if you say, you know what, God, I know I'm a sinner. There's no mystery about that. I can't live up to my own standards of goodness, much less yours. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do things, I know they're wrong, and I do them anyway. So we all know we're sinners, and if we say, I want to confess that, I want to turn from that, I want to just receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross when he died as our substitute to pay for all of our sin. When we do that, that is available at any time, day or night, that, uh, that, that you are ready to receive it, and God will begin to do a change, a revolution in your soul as well. You're known as an apologist, and mm-hmm. grace has got to be one of the things that sets Christianity apart. It is. Uh, grace is unique among world religions. Uh, there, every other religion in the world is spelled D-O. It means we have to do a bunch of things to try to earn our way to God, use a Tibetan prayer wheel, go in a series of reincarnations, uh, give alms to the poor, whatever it is. And then maybe, maybe, or maybe not, you may or may not earn your way to God. Christianity is not spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E. Mm-hmm. It's done. Jesus said it's finished. He has paid for the price for our sin. He offers forgiveness as a free gift of his grace. Uh, that is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. It makes it unique. And um, you know what? If you want to raise a dysfunctional family, love your children conditionally. Uh, if you're good enough, maybe I'll love you. Maybe, you know, you want to raise a healthy family, you love them unconditionally. That's how God loves us. One final thing. Do you recall what you said about your tombstone in this book? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't read the, reread the book in a while, but yeah, I know what I want on my tombstone, which is that uh, here, here lies someone so amazed by God's grace that he couldn't keep it to himself. You know, that's my calling. We talk about God's calling on our life. For me, it is to tell other people about Jesus. Um, I teach it to university students. I, you know, I, I try through my books and just through conversations um, with everyday folks, try to tell them, you know, there is hope, there is redemption, there is compassion, there is love, there is grace available. And uh, Jesus is there when you need him. Once again, Lee Strobel's new book is titled The Case for Grace, and you'll find more information about it on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Today's conversation with Lee is the latest in this weekly series of interviews, all of which are archived online at firstpersoninterview.com. Stretching back several years now, you'll find a long list of programs you can download as a podcast through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also stream any interview right on the website, firstpersoninterview.com. And then we've set up a page on Facebook where you can leave a comment. It's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, you'll meet two brothers who are on a path to destruction when Jesus took over their lives. Josh and Matt Cater will be with us next week. I'd like to thank the Far East Broadcasting Company for their support in bringing you today's program. And also thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.